Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is right on 7.30. And, of course, it's Sunday morning and time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. We have to welcome back into the studio, and I'm highly delighted, Simon Rickard. Good morning, Simon. Good morning, Pam. Oh, it's great to have you back, even though it's cold weather for me to drag you down from Trentham. <laughs> oh, I enjoy it. I love it. Good, good, good. Excellent. Yep. And you said you've had snow. Yeah, we have. We've, we've had quite a bit of snow. It hasn't really settled on the ground up there, although we did have black ice the other morning, so there were cars sliding around on the roads. I bet. But, uh, you know, winter's one of my favourite seasons in the garden. I say that every season. Spring's my favourite season. Oh, summer's my favourite season. Winter is currently my favourite season in the garden, and uh, there's so much blossom and fragrance, and uh, I love it. So it's a great time of the year. Yeah, so many people uh, think that nothing comes out in flower in wintertime. Yeah. Look, if you, if you haven't got any flowers in your garden at the moment, you're not trying hard enough because <laughs> there's so many things that flower in winter. You know, plants from... From Mediterranean climates where, where winter is the growing season and summer's the dormant season. You know, all that stuff's going off now. So, mm. yeah. Fantastic. We also have to say good morning to James Beatty. Good morning, James. Good morning, Pam. How are you this morning? Yes, really well. And you? Yeah, very well. Saw Excellent. the moon setting as I was driving in this morning. It was beautiful. Almost caused an accident, I reckon. I was looking at it too much. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> but although we are in the thick of winter, you can notice the day's progressively getting longer as we go along. Um, I'm walking the dog every time I get home from work in the afternoon and it's usually been pitch black for the last couple of months, but mm. there's a little bit of a little bit of sun on the horizon every time I go out now. So that always puts a little spring in my step. Excellent. So yeah, I'm looking forward to spring. Even I love I love winter too, Simon. I really do. <laughs> but um, I, spring is one of my favourites where everything just erupts out of the ground. Yeah. So there's, there's been a few signs of that already in my garden, so I'm looking forward to it. Yep. Great. <laughs> we also uh, have AB in this morning again behind the panel. Good morning, AB. Oh, good morning, Pam. Good morning, everybody. Yes, it's good lovely morning, to be AB. here. Good morning. And um, yes, I was watching the moon this morning. I, I was a little bit sad um, when I first got up because it was behind cloud and it's always disappointing, especially when it's a glorious full moon. Mm. And then as I pulled onto the freeway, the cloud parted and there it was. And it was, mm. yes, in, in all its delight. So it was wonderful. But um, yeah. Yes, it's, there are sort of slight hints of spring. I, I'm not sure if that's just me being hopeful. But, um, yeah, and uh, same, same as you, James. As soon as spring comes, it's like all these plants just are desperate to start growing, isn't it? It's quite incredible compared to – I mean, I still put in, I put in some broccoli seeds and um, a, a couple of other things recently, broad beans and whatnot. And they, they do – they want to grow, but it's just for some reason it's not like spring where they literally erupt out of the yeah, ground. Yeah. And, yeah, so, um, but um, always interested to see what grows over winter. And I sort of feel sorry for the plants that are out there because it is so damn cold. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I'm always surprised that things actually want to grow. Mm. But, uh, yeah, they do. They do. Absolutely, <laughs> they do. I was talking to Millie Ross about um, 
growing English spinach in the garden. And she said, oh, geez, I just I stand there and I look at it for months and it just does nothing. And I just go, come on, come on, would you hurry up and grow? <laughs> and then when winter it's comes, winter it starts growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Same, I've got warrigal greens growing in the glasshouse in a um, sort of hanging pot and they're all starting to trail down. And um, they, they sat there, I put them in an autumn and they sat there just thinking about things for a while. And then uh-huh. as soon as it cooled down, they went, yeah, okay, we're ready now. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get moving. So that's, yeah, no, nice to see and nice to have in the kitchen as well. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to hop straight into some community announcements because, uh, believe it or not, there are still events happening despite the cold weather. Now, first up, uh, today is the second day of a winter orchid show. Now, this is being held by the Warringal Orchid Society and it's at St Sava Community Centre. Now, that's at 212 Diamond Creek Road in Greensboro. Melway's reference there is 11 c8 now there's ample parking there's wheelchair access and it's running from 9 30 this morning through till 4 30 there'll be orchid plants for sale refreshments devonshire teas um books orchid food potting bark pots and accessories and there'll be uh, orchid repotting demonstrations admission for that one is four dollars uh, of course, it's the first Sunday in the month, which means that Villa Alba is open again to the public this afternoon. That's the historic house and garden. Their address is 44 Walmer Street in Kew, 1 p.m. through to 4 p.m. Admission is $10 with an $8 concession. Uh, now, coming up next uh, on the 8th and, uh, let me see, the 8th and 9th of August... Um, we have the Waverley Bonsai Show coming up. Now, this is at Mount Waverley Community Centre, uh, which, of course, is 47 Miller Crescent in Mount Waverley. Saturday, it's 10 o'clock through till 4.30. Sunday, 10 o'clock through till 4. There'll be demonstrations, displays, trade tables. If you'd like more information on that one, you can contact Bruce, and his number is 98028529. Now, uh, also on uh, August the 7th, which is Friday, of course, uh, the Australian Plant Society Keelor Plains Group is meeting again at 8 o'clock. Now, their uh, speaker is going to be Maria Hitchcock. She's author of Corriers, Australian Plants for Waterwise Gardens, and she's holder of the National Corrier Collection for the Garden Plant Conservation Association of Australia. So she's guest speaking on gardening with couriers. Now, the venue is the Uniting Church, corner of Roberts Road and Glenis Avenue in Airport West. All are welcome. And if you'd like more information <clears throat> there, you can contact Anne. Her number is 9336 uh, <clears throat> Just a couple more I should mention that are coming up. Firstly, uh, on the weekend of 15th and 16th of August... The Waverley Garden Club and Camellias Victoria are holding a combined uh, show. Again, this is down at Mount Waverley Community Centre. Uh, <clears throat> admission will be $5 for adults. Children are free and it's featuring the Victorian Camellia Championships and the Waverley Floral Art Championships. For more information on that one, you can contact Linda. Her number is 0412 and finally, one I should mention about <clears throat> a very exciting talk that's coming up. This is being organised by the uh, Friends of Royal Botanic Gardens Cranbourne and it's an afternoon on Sunday the 16th of August 
where um, David Carroly will present a talk, Where To for Climate Change. Now, David is Chair of Atmospheric Sciences, School of Earth Sciences, University of Melbourne. So he's uh, <clears throat> highly regarded as a speaker. The talk will be held in the Australian Garden Auditorium at Royal Botanic Gardens in Cranbourne. Cost is $20 and uh, that will run from 2 o'clock uh, on Sunday, 16th of August. Now, <clears throat> you do need to book for that one. Uh, if you'd like to more information or to have a booking form sent out to you, you need to phone 8774-2483. That's 8774-2483. Well, we might uh, open up our talkback lines nice and early this morning to uh, encourage some of you to get up out of bed on this... Uh, That's just mean, Pam. <laughs> ...chilly morning. <laughs> well, they can always lie in bed and phone Take us. Take the mobiles. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. The mobiles. But the number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. We have... Simon Rickard, of course, horticulturist, um, tour guide, um, author extraordinaire. <laughs> and we have James Beattie, who's a researcher with ABC Gardening Australia. So do give us a call. The number is 94190155. Or if you'd like to speak to Anne on the outside line, 94198377. Well, let's start, James, because you brought in a couple of plants from your garden. I presume they're from your garden or about to enter into your garden, well, are they? Well, two of them are from the garden. <clears throat> okay. Four of them are about to become part of the garden right. today. Good. Um, I'm planting out my nature strip. I live in the northern suburbs in Melbourne. Um, and I'm going for like a grassland effect, a native grassland effect in my in my nature strip. Mm-hmm. Um, Before you continue, um, are you in a suburb where you've had to get council permission to plant that out? I am. I am. My council's guidelines are that if you if you um, are planning to do something that is outside the guidelines, you have to apply for a permit. Um, so I've I've made sure that my my little design that I've got happening ticks all the boxes, so I don't have to apply Within for a permit. Within the guidelines. But that Good. being said, um, it's Darabin Council, and um, it's a it's a free application and process. You don't have to pay for it. Some councils will slug you about eighty five bucks yes. to, to yes. have a crack at gardening on your nature strip. Um, which is, you know, it's not something I agree with because if you want to encourage people to do it, then I think I think charging someone to apply for a permit for it is is a bit rich, really. What were the it's guidelines a, <coughs> as a matter of interest? Um, they were, you had to keep a 30 centimetre strip um, from the, the entire border of the little of the little nature strip island had to, the, the 30 centimetres from each edge had to be kept free of vegetation. Um, you couldn't put any, um, you can't put your letterbox on the nature strip, not that you'd want to anyway, you just confuse the postie. Um <laughs> And you... I suppose no, no tall plants? No tall plants. Yeah. All had to be yeah. under 50 centimetres yeah. or so. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, for line of sight and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, any infrastructure that you put in in paving or anything like that has to be flexible and so they can still access services if, if, if and when the time comes. Um, any guidelines about edible plants? Because I know councils have been worried about things like mm. planting fruit trees where the fruit mm. will drop and potentially cause yeah. someone to slip or fall. Yeah. Um, I, know, I know other councils um, discourage their residents from food gardening on their nature strips, um, but I didn't, I didn't really look into what Darabin's policies is because mm-hmm. I, 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 did, I wasn't interested in planting a, an edible nature strip. Right. Um, but I, my background's in um, 
bushland management and bush ecology, and we did a little bit of work in in grasslands and open woodlands that have a lot of native grass species. And I just love the look of a, I love the look of a local a local grass ecosystem. I think it's really visually appealing. Um, and and there's this idea of you know meadow gardening that's come out of the United States and things, but um, there isn't really an Australian equivalent. And and I feel I feel a bit weird about describing Australian grasslands as a meadow, you know, like a native meadow because it's not it's not really a meadow. It's you know in an ecological sense, it is more of a grassland. And yes. I think I think we need to take ownership of that a bit more and um, and and have a crack ourselves. So what having, do you think the differences? Well, I always imagine meadow as more of a as more of a you know like more of a, a riparian and a higher rainfall mm-hmm. kind of ecosystem, sure. whereas yeah. ours are very adapted to a lot of water deficit and. Um, so in and England we might thing. have meadows, whereas in Australia we'd have we'd, we'd have grasslands. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the the diversity of them is incredible as well. You know, there's lots of little herbs and forbs and things and. All the it, orchids and lilies at this time of year. Yeah, yes. absolutely. It's just beautiful and it's booming. Um, and and it's 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 quite a sad tale actually because there's less than there's less than one or two percent of grasslands left in Victoria mm. um, that used to that used to be here. They've either been grazed to within an inch of their lives or. I was actually listening to Radio National on the way down here and um, uh, on Off Track they were talking about um, a program to replant uh, a little native orchid called Caledonia xanthokyla up in the uh, Loddenshire uh, on the Dyadjawarum country and um, there's only three of them left in the wild in in a 20 by 30 metre enclosure where, you you know, rabbits and wallabies can't get in. But they managed to propagate 100 and they've planted out 100 of these uh, things now. So now there are 103 in the wild. It's, uh, yeah, not not ideal. (laughs) (laughs) Before we continue, we might go to our first caller because they may be holding on on STD. Uh, so we'll go to Robert down at Phillip Island. Hello, how are you? Morning, Robert. G'day, Robert. Hi, how are you all? Thought I'd better ring in for a change. Good now, idea. I'm <laughs> sitting in the lounge room. The little wood heater's going. I can see the glow of the coals and the lovely colour of the wood burning. The kettle's on top and it's just starting to boil. Oh, we're on our way, Robert. <laughs> and I'm about to have a nice cup of tea. Made in a teapot with uh, not those awful tea bags, but the real thing. So I'm sitting back here listening to your lovely program. (laughs) Good on you. What a great picture you've just created. Oh, thank you. Now, can I just quickly tell you, um, I went to a a very good daffodil grower a couple of weeks ago, Graham Brumley from Warrigal, and he grows mostly all his own daffodil seedlings and the colours are absolutely superb. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated what some of these daffodil growers are doing with colour and some of his miniatures are are exquisite. Tell me, Robert, is he growing them for for display, for showing on the show bench? Yes, he does on the show bench um, Mm -hmm. at at the Daffodil Society uh, at Lee and Gatha Mm -hmm. and he shows in other areas, but a very nice man. But I saw some of a very early, but some of the colours... it's fascinating that some people, some of the breeders take up to 30 years mm. of culling and getting different colour tones in their pollen mm. to produce some of the colours we've got. Those amazing salmon pinks and so forth? Oh, at least. And acid greens? And... Oh, look, look, I saw last year some green petals with lovely red trumpets. Mm, wow. So that they're getting it from the colour gene, but 
And there's another interesting grower some of the listeners might be interested to hear about, another gentleman called John Smith. Now, he lives at Tyres on top of a big mountain. Now, he grows all his daffodils in pots where Mm. I don't have the same luck, but he has superb luck. Mm. But he's in a coldish area, gets a lot of mist. Mm. But uh, some of the theories uh, he questions... We have a lot of tradition about bulbs, and, and there's a case where uh, he has great success in pots. Uh, where I am is a bit warmer, and I don't have the same success. So mm. the jury's out, I think, in a lot of lot of the theories. Mm-hmm. But uh, look, the, the Daffodil Show, if I could... Could I just quickly mention what dates are on at Lee and Gatha? Yes, certainly. Uh, the dates are Friday, September the 11th, Saturday, September the 12th, and Sunday, September the 13th. So that's uh, the the big daffodil show. And I would tell you and all your uh, listeners, well worth the trip up. Mm. Well Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, anyway, I'm, look, I'm just about to have the cup of tea now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I hear the kettle boiling. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 good, yes, yeah. I'll think of you while I'm having my cup of tea. <laughs> good, good on you, on Robert. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Right, James, back to your nature strip. <laughs> Yeah, so look, I, I'm I'm starting off with just um, four species in the front garden at the moment, hoping that um, they're going to they're going to self seed and recruit. Um, and to that end, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be mulching the nature strip at all because that's really going to inhibit a lot of seeds germinating and and that kind of stuff. So um, I've gone for a mix of I've got two species of local grass. I've got um, a species of poa poa siberiana. Um, and that's that's very similar to um, Poa Lab that a lot of people mm. would be familiar with, but it's it's a bit more of a stout version of it. Okay, um, and it doesn't it looks slightly finer, is it? It fi- is. It, it is left? a bit finer, yeah. yeah. And it doesn't get it doesn't get quite as thatchy either. Mm. I found mm. when I've seen it growing in the wild. So I'm hoping that it's going to be a little bit you know a little bit neater, mm. and it's not going to have a lot of that dead thatch in it. And um, to give the garden a bit of to give the nature strip a bit of seasonal height as well, I've got. Um, Ostrostipa rudis, um, so it's you know it's related to to plants like Stipa gigantea and that, which are classic um, classic garden plants. Um, but they they put up they don't put up massive golden oak flower heads like Stipa gigantea does, but they they put up really really delicate and feathery flower heads um, in in mid spring and early summer. Um, and they're held well above the foliage; they get to about fifty or sixty centimeters. So that's going to add a bit of airy height to the garden at a certain time of year. Um, and in summer, if it, is, if it is really hot and there's a lack of moisture, um, they can die right back to the ground as well, but they will come back and they perennialise really well in a garden situation. I've grown them before in borders and things like that. Um, so I've got, I've got 50 each of those two species and they're going to form the bulk of the planting. Um, and to add a bit of colour in there, I've got, um, I've got the local species of Linum, Linum marginale, um, and it's a plant that um, the indigenous people used to use for rope and nets and things. They used to they used to harvest the stems and dry them and then wet them and use them for weaving. Because um, of course, linum's flax, isn't it? Well, that's right. It's a flax, yeah. yeah. And the seeds look exactly like a flax seed that you would get mm. from you know from the supermarket. Mm. Um, and it's it's a dainty little plant. It only gets to about forty centimeters high. Um, and it's got these beautiful, beautiful little leaves, but at um, kind of early to mid-spring, it gets smothered in 
hundreds and hundreds of these tiny little blue flowers. And the native bees absolutely go crazy for them. Um, and they, they produce a prodigious amount of seed, which is good because um, I've found them quite tricky to perennialise unless they're in a spot that they really, really love and they get everything that they need. Um, and I haven't really figured out everything that they need yet, so <laughs> I'm crossing my fingers that they're going to like it on the nature strip. Um, but they do set a lot of seed and they do, uh, they do germinate easily from seed, so I'm hoping that they, they establish a bit of a population. So is it, is it an annual or a short-lived it's, it's, perennial? It's, it's a short-lived perennial. Yeah. Yeah, yep, mainly. And mm. the seeds, the seeds are typical of all flax, when they get wet, they get that really sticky, goopy mm. consistency, so they really stick to the soil surface and so with all those with all those things going for it, I'm hoping it makes a good addition. Um mm. but it's all it's all a bit of an experiment at the moment. Um and the last one is is lemon beauty heads, Calocephalus citrius. Um it's a cute little plant to about, I don't know, twenty centimetres high. And it gets hundreds of little drumstick like flowers um on the top. In, in summer, so it's a it's a summer flower. The hotter it gets, the more it likes it. So, hot and dry is the name of the game. So, I'm just going to use that as a bit of a as a bit of an edging along along the. Uh, along I was the going footpath. to say it yeah. would get totally swamped by <coughs> yeah. some of your grasses. Oh, absolutely, yes. yeah. So it's a, it's a little delicate one compared to the others. So yep. yeah, mm. yep. Oh, that's fun. I've got to be careful I don't overplant actually. So right. I've, got, I've got I've got a good two hundred odd plants to put in, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take a lot of time. Setting them out this afternoon mm. and just mm. making sure everything has enough room to grow. Mm. It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, native grassland we we kind of take for granted because it just looks like weeds, you, you know. I mean, and, yeah, and to the untrained eye, yep. but actually, it's quite difficult to manage if you if you want to try to grow one in a you know make mm. it mm. In, in your garden. Quite, yeah, it's it takes a lot difficult. of skill and understanding to to manage it. It does, it does. And I think you'd have to create a weed free environment to start mm. with, especially you know with the kikuyus and cooches. Absolutely. And because, does help. I mean, if they get in there, it's, mm. it's just going to be a nightmare mm. to manage, isn't it? Mm. I am. Um, I I did a whole lot of direct seeding in my front yard when we first moved into our place before I changed it completely. Um, and as long as you can, in, as long as you can intensely weed an area for the first year or so, if you're happy to do that. Mm. And that again takes a lot of skill because when things are just germinating, how do how do you tell the difference between a, a local wallaby grass and mm. you know, especially if you haven't right. grown it before? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. So it does take it does take a keen eye and a and a, yep. and a little bit of experience to yeah. do it well. Um, but you know, our our nature strips probably oh, fifteen meters by about two and a half, three meters, mm. um, and that's an area that I'll be able to hand weed myself um, mm. as as I go as I go along. Um, but What's there now, James? Um, there was a Kaikuyu lawn, yeah. but that's that's gone by the wayside right on, now. Yeah. And I've put in a couple of bits of um, bits of paving, and I've put in a little spot for the bins. Um, so thinking about access areas and things like that, because I don't I don't want people walking across it after no. it's planted no, no. out. So if you give people a clear delineated area that says this is where you're going to walk you know, instead of walking. <laughs> Cutting across yeah, it. Yeah, good and luck you hope with that. They all follow <laughs> in line. The, the meter reader at my place who reads the electricity meter will always, even though I've got a lovely gravel path, he will always schlep straight through the middle of my oh, garden. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. So now I've I've done a revenge planting to to discourage him from doing that. I put in a um, rosa sericea. No, no, rosa sericea, which is a rose that's got thorns about um, about three centimeters long, <laughs> and it's absolutely murderous. So I put this right in the middle of the pathway where he always goes. So that should. Dissuade him. <laughs> <laughs> 
So good luck with your pathway. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. I think I'm going to need it, to be honest. But that's yeah. what I mean. I mean, you know, you know, we look at a, a native grassland and see all these incredibly exquisite little plants that are mm. perfectly adapted to that. And, you know, the seasonal delicacy of the little orchids and lilies. And other people just look at it and see weeds and think, oh, that's for walking on. Mm. You know, that's oh, right. This bloke's mm. not weeding his nature strip properly, you know. And I think a lot of that does come from... Um, the fact that we've got such a dearth of, of grassland in excellent quality yeah, in, in Victoria really now. Mm. So a lot of people have never seen it at oh. its height and peaking, and it is absolutely beautiful. Yeah, um, Where I grew up in Canberra, um, there, there's a, an old cemetery in, in, in a little town just outside Canberra called Hall. And Hall Cemetery, because it's been fenced off from livestock since the 1830s, has got amazing native grassland so mm. you know if you go out there in spring the place is just heaving with orchid nuts and lily yes. nuts right. all yes. throwing themselves on their stomachs looking at these <laughs> tiny little orchids but it really is i mean it's just and then you compare that with the surrounding countryside which is just all um you know non-native grasses mm. uh, phalaris and, and and all the rest of it and yep. uh it's it's totally different and it just gives you an insight into what australia must have looked like before oh, white settlement yeah. i mean totally different when, when I was reading Bill Gamage's book and hearing mm. descriptions of grasslands and things, you, you almost read it with a little bit of pain because you mm. go, oh, I would love to have seen that in its heyday. You know, mm. We're never going to see that again. No, we're no. Really no not. that's right. They and the British settlers lucky. were talking in terms of flowery meads and stuff, you know, exactly, uh, right. for which they knew from home. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yep. We've had a query, James. Is the flax plant edible <laughs> by uh, cows and sheep? Or does it have any nutritional value? I don't know, actually. I'm, I'm not sure the answer to that question. Um You'd think it probably would. I think it would you? be. Yeah. That's probably why it's endangered. <laughs> yeah, it's probably extra tasty. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I might remind listeners that number, if you'd like to join in the discussion this morning, we'd love to hear from you. We're running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. So uh, to speak to the team on air, uh, the number 94190155. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Anne on the outside line, Nine four one nine eight three double seven. So, James, what else have you got there, apart from what uh, you're the planting last, out? The last two that I've brought in, um, one is another local native plant that I've got in my garden. Um, it's a species of Illyria. Now, when I bought it from the Indige Nursery, um, it was labelled Illyria argophylla. Um, and argophylla usually has a much broader leaf on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and... There's another species, uh, Phlogopapa, Illyria Phlogopapa, that has a narrower leaf, but it's, got, it's much more downy and it's softer. So this one kind of has the texture of Illyria argophylla, but it kind of looks like Illyria Phlogopapa. Um, so I'm, I'm unsure as to which it is, really, um, and maybe it's a hybrid. I don't know. I'm not sure about how, how readily they hybridise. Um, but it's a plant that I planted as a tube about a year and a half ago. Right. Um, and it's well over eight foot tall at the moment. Wow. And, it, and, it's, and it will grow into a small tree um, eventually. I did a lot of work around King Lake in the, in the post-fire recovery period. Um, and there were lots of old Illyria um, argophyllas that had reshot from their lignituber. Okay. And I just love the really broad, silvery look of the leaf. It had a sheen to it as well as it was regrowing. It was really, really beautiful. But they would only grow in quite shady gullies and quite moist sites. Um, so I picked up I picked up a tube from um, the Indigenous Nursery at Latrobe Uni, which is which is an excellent little Indigenous nursery. It's one of the best in Melbourne, I reckon. The staff are always really helpful and their stock's really good. Um, and I whacked it in the front garden, right in front of the uh, veranda of the house. We have a California bungalow that faces south. 
Um, so it gets no direct sun for most of the year, um, and it's quite a moist spot. We're at the bottom of two hills, so I think we we collect a lot of moisture where we are. Yes. Um, and it's just going absolutely gangbusters, and it loves it. And I've brought in a, just, you know, bog-standard Lamium maculatum, and it's underplanted with the... Mm. Oh, lovely. And, and, and the combination of the nice two combo. is yeah. just stunning, you know. It's spot on. Um, I really, really love it. There's the there's the white kind of downy um, look of the Illyria, and there's that beautiful silvery uh, silver silver leaf of the of the Lamium with the green leaf margin, mm. um, and it's kind of a, a, a reversal, I reckon. Mm. Um, you know, and it's and it's just it just it, every time I look at it, I just go, oh, that looks great. <laughs> God, I'm good. <laughs> so yeah, look, I, I I brought this in as an example that. Um, I think there is room for local plants in people's gardens. You know? I'm sure, um, of it. and I reckon everyone should have a crack. Really, mm. um, uh, one of the one of the best plants in my garden for attracting native bees is um, Wayland Bergia communis. I see so many native bees on that in the summertime. Um, so yeah, I reckon people should just should just get out there and have an experiment, and you know, it's it's great fun. Just, I've got just one of, sorry, go on. Sorry, before you start, Simon. Um, Fill us in a bit more, James, about the um, Indige Nursery at, at La Trobe mm. Uni. Is it open every day? Or No, it's, it's, I think it's open most days during the week, but it's not open on a Saturday, but it is open on a Sunday um, oh, for okay. a few hours. The details are on the website. If you, if you throw La Trobe Uni and Nursery into Google, it'll, 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 come po- up. it'll pop right up. Yep. Yeah. Um, but uh, they, they redid their nursery area a few years ago. Um, and it's just it's just great. The staff are a delight to talk to, and um, you know you'll talk about what you want, and they'll chew your ear off, and you'll come away with several <laughs> things, um, you know, yeah, you to try in that spot you, as well. You never yeah. thought you wanted. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 a great little nursery. Um, Excellent. So I reckon, yeah, if if you're in the northern suburbs, or even if you're not, um, go go in and check it out. It's yeah. it's really really good. I mean, even if you're not from that local area, as you say, a lot of these plants are indigenous to a wide range in Melbourne. So yeah. I mean, you could find something that is not growing or that your local mm. indigenous nursery doesn't have growing at that particular time mm. but somewhere else does and yep. if it, you know if it's a local species to you mm. yeah go and pick it up and things like grasses are so cosmopolitan anyway um, you know you don't really have to get something that's that's from from really local local endemic. seed stock yeah, yeah. Yes. so it's not it's not pivotal with, yes. with grasses in particular excellent yeah Okay, Simon, you've brought in something you were oh, about yeah. to tell well, us about. Just, uh, just on the point that James was just making about, um, uh, you know, some, some locally endemic plants, I I'm, I'm, don't consider myself to be a native plant grower. You know, that's not sort of how I define myself. But this is one plant that's um, uh, that grows in my area that I use in my garden. And this is a native elderberry panax. Mm. Uh, ah. Polycius sambucifolius, and um, it grows all up and down the east coast of Australia, um, and it uh, has different forms in different places. So this one that that I'm holding up, which I'm making for great radio, um, it, it's got a sort of fishbone effect. It, it, the the leaves look like fishbone fern, sort mm-hmm. of. They're quite wide, We're like quite wide spaces in between. Yeah, them. that's right. Mm-hmm. Exactly, like it, the like rib, the ribs are quite like widely spaced. That's yeah. right. And this is the local form that grows in the hills around Melbourne. Um, but I also grow another form which comes it's a subalpine form oh, from wow. Tasmania and it's got really ferny very very finely cut foliage and it grows as a, a round bushy shrub whereas our local form kind of grows into uh, a, a little thicket almost like bamboo sort of okay. look to it about about 10 feet tall so they have a really different look they've, they've both got the same sort of silvery underside on the leaves and that they flower and fruit at the same time but they look totally different 
And um, the, so all of the plants that I've brought in today are actually plants which will grow under gum trees. Because oh, that's one and of the that's most, such a difficult exactly. area to deal with. Well, it is because, I mean, gum trees take light. They take water from the soil, which Absolutely. is what they're adapted to do. Yes. Um, but they're also allelopathic, which means they produce a poison that tries to kill anything growing in their root zone. Mm. And that, of course, is an adaptation to, to our dry climate. You know, yes. in dry years, um, they will produce more of these allelotoxins, more of these poisons to try to kill anything growing in their root zone, including their own babies, It's so that they can preserve themselves through the dry years and, and hopefully survive into the, the good years again. Mm. So it is really difficult to garden under excuse me, to garden under gum trees for those reasons. So I've, I've just brought in a bucket of plants that will grow under gum trees and look great. And they're all foliage plants, really. You know, forget about growing flowers under gum trees. The best you can hope for is really handsome foliage. Mm. And so that's what my bucket of plants is all about today. <laughs> but the Sambucus is going to flower for you, isn't it? Well, it is, but it's not really a spectacular flower. Right. The Sambucus is in the same family as, as ivy. It's in the, um, the Aureliaceae family. And so it has flowers that look a bit like, um, well, they look a bit like parsley flowers, really. Mm. You know, they're, they're sort of pale yellow green. They don't have any petals. They're not okay. very interesting. And, you know, you definitely don't grow it for the flowers. No. But the foliage is, is the just The foliage fantastic. is gorgeous. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And such delicate fo- with both of mm. them. Mm. Because they're so open and allowing the light through, you get That's that right. wonderful mm. effect of lightness and laciness. Exactly. Yeah, yes. yeah. There's a, I grow a third form as well, which I forgot to bring a leaf in. But it's, it's from Queensland, this particular form. And its leaves are about 60 or 70 centimetres long. Mm. And each leaflet is, is sort of 10 centimetres and it grows it looks like bamboo it, it, okay. it suckers and yes. it forms a whole sort of grove and it grows to about 15 feet tall so depending on which you know it's interesting james was using talking about plants that are endemic to different areas this particular species can look completely different mm. depending on where on the east coast of australia it's from mm. so yeah Fantastic. i love that tazzy form yeah, it's good, isn't it? Yeah, really good. Yeah, yeah that, and that one's actually in horticulture. So the, the, the Tassie form with the very, very, very finely cut leaves is available in horticulture. So Fantastic. Yeah. Before we start on your other plants, Simon, oh, we'll yes. go to our next caller. Oh, good morning, Sue. Um, hello. Hi, Sue. Uh, you're down in Kingsbury. How are you? Yes, um, yes I just live near, near Latrobe. I was over at the um, Indigenous Nursery the other week, actually. Mm-hmm. And I love going over there, but I was thinking about um, the um, nature strip planting and how to prepare prepare the ground for it, because mine's just covered in that awful, um, you know, grass that you've got to mow all the time. <laughs> right. And, and I've seen quite a few. I've been mean, looking at other nature strips. There's quite a few around that are gorgeous in um, various parts, like Fairfield and so on. Mm-hmm. But because it's got all that um, cuckoo grass on it, it's sort of difficult i didn't know how to quite prepare it sure sure um you can you can smother it um get you know sheets of newspaper get a broadsheet and get about seven or eight pages thick and and really just absolutely cover it um and then throw a bit of mulch on top of that and and that that will do it but you will get a few runners coming up but um i always think i always think the the tenacity of kaikuyu is a bit overrated because it is kind of that creeping creeping stoloniferous kind of grass so you can see it where it pops up and it is pretty easy to hand weed patches out that do reshoot 
Um, yeah. So that's probably the best way to go if you want to if you want to do it organically. Um, I reckon. Um, could but, you solarise it, James, with black plastic or old carpet or something? Like I that? reckon you probably could. I haven't. I haven't had a crack at that with Kaikuyu, but I, I think it would be successful. Yeah, at um, least weaken it for a season or so, mm, and then and then give it a good dig over. Yeah, and, yeah. yep. Because it, it is easy to weed out. I reckon. Um, yeah. And uh, another method would be to. Uh, um, Oh, what else could you do um, without spraying it? Of course. Yeah, well, that, they sound like good ideas. Well, yeah, you can actually sure. you can buy. Um, it's almost like a flamethrower. Um, I, th- mm. I think Mitre Ten sell those, and they they're fantastic for weeding. I keep meaning to get my hands on one and forgetting to buy one. But mm. um, yeah, that that's something that you could try. Obviously, it's not going to kill the grass, but it'll mm. certainly um, you know weaken it and mm. yeah, just give you that chance to. They're they're really good for annual weeds. The, the yes. flamethrowers. Mm. I, I used to use those a lot um, in my previous jobs, but um, <laughs> not so good for perennial weeds because uh, they'll they'll come back from under the ground. So that might not be the best thing for your kaikuyu. So. <laughs> But they're very great, they're wonderful mm. for annual weeds. Mm. Yeah. If you know where your services are in your nature strip, and you wanted to, um, you wanted to get up that uh, weed seed load as well. Um, I, I always had a thought of having a crack with a turf cutter and rolling it up, and that way you're taking away, you're taking away that seed bank as well. Mm. So in the long term, you're going to have less less weeding to do. Okay, um, that sounds great. Or a combination of all the above. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> no, I probably I've always hand weeding, so I probably hand weed and mother. Sounds good. Um, it sounds like you had some beautiful plants for your nature strip as well. It sounds very interesting. Yeah, I hope it's going to turn out all right. Yeah. should be good, but it'll change a lot over the years, I think. Just yeah. see, see what works and see what doesn't. And um, yeah, just... and that's what gardening's all about. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, actually, one of, one of the reasons I need to expand out, I've only got a, quite a small garden and I keep on, like, uh, buying plants and filling it up <laughs> over, over at the Latro Sunday Market, actually. I go over there a bit and to the n- little um, Indigenous nursery there. That's a fantastic fun, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. But it's every gardener's dilemma, isn't it? You get to oh. a point you just think, oh, I need a bigger yard. Oh. I, need, I, need, I need another acre. Oh. That's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's really yeah, true. Yeah, th- thanks for the lovely show. It's fantastic. Great. Thanks, Cheers, Sue. Sue. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Right, back to the plants under the gum trees, Simon. <laughs> oh, yeah, plants under gum trees. So I've got a couple of other native plants in here, um, which are um, Coria uh, lorenziana, which is one of my favourites. Um, it's a, a, a Coria that comes from sort of wet sclerophyll, so it's got quite a broad, generous, dark green leaf mm-hmm. with a slightly rusty-coloured um, indumentum um, sort of fuzz on the underside. And it flowers now, bang in the middle of winter, with these pale, very pale green um, little bells that hang down. Of course, the honey eaters love them. But you really grow it as a foliage plant rather than as a as a flowering plant. And uh, it's one of the bigger corias. It, it grows, you know, kind of two or three metres tall and two or three metres wide. And it, it clips really well, so you can hedge it. Um, so that that's a really brilliant plant, I think. And um, I'm, I'm holding it up now, the, the, this sprig. It's got dark, reddy brown, sort of chestnut-coloured stems with the glossy green leaves. And if you turn it over to the other side, you can you can see the um, the rusty undersides of the leaves. So when it when it blows in the breeze, you get this sort of two-tone effect. It's a really beautiful plant. So, so even though it's from like a wet sclerophyll area, it's a bit too early to be saying that word, I think. <laughs> um, it, it goes well under trees? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it grows very well right up to the, the bases of gum trees. So, um, yeah. Great. It, yeah, yep. The leaves um, on it are massive, aren't they, compared to a, a lot of other they are. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep. yep, absolutely. Yeah, I know most people do think that um, 
you know, it's difficult to grow under gum trees. And I think if you're in the garden, it can be. But really, if you go out into the wild, there's a lot of stuff growing yep. under the gum trees. <laughs> you know, it, it, and as you were saying, Simon, often it's the um, grasses and the, you know, the strappy, strappy leaf plants, lamandras and whatnot, <coughs> that maybe they're not affected by the chemicals in the soil. Mm. I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good chance to go get out into the wild and see what's growing in your local area. Mm. Um, if you've got bush in your in your area and um, you know you can use that under your trees in your garden Mm. Um, I mean don't have to put Mm. flowers in as you're saying but no uh, no it depends on what kind of look you want I guess and I like a really full lush sort of look especially in summer you you know um, I I don't want to look at sort of sticky spiky things under my gum trees I want something that looks really glossy and full and lush Mm. so that's how I've selected the plants that I've come up with and you know like like um, Sue was saying that our last caller it's it's sort of trial and error I think the best way to learn to garden is to kill lots of plants actually Mm. you know learn I've killed lots of plants (laughs) (laughs) I think we're all in that boat yeah absolutely (laughs) best way to learn to garden Um, this is a plant from Tasmania called Acrodenia uh, Franklinii And um, it's got uh, leaves that are arranged in little whirls around the stems. Um, these, so it's kind of got a sort of starburst effect. And mm. again, the leaves are really glossy, uh, reflective green, which is a colour I really like. Like um, I try not to plant things that are grey coloured or, um, sorry, reflective. I like these sort of light absorbent dark greens just mm. because it looks cooler in summer. Um, and none of these plants get watered in my climate. Um, so they might need a little bit of water in, in Melbourne, depending on where, which sort of, you know, whether you're in the east or the west. Um, this Acrodenia flowers in the springtime too. It has little white star-shaped fluffy flowers, uh, quite a lot of them. And the foliage smells a bit like grapefruit. If you, really? If you crush it up and smell okay. it, it's kind of grapefruity or something. Um, and the last native plant that I have is a fern, actually, um, which is the this... Uh, is it called Mother Shield Fern? Polysticum yep. pro- proliferum. Mother Shield Fern, is it? Or something like that. Polysticum <laughs> proliferum. Oh, that's too early to say this morning. <laughs> Polysticum proliferum. And um, it's a fern which uh, has got a very dark green frond and uh, it's covered in red, dark reddy chestnut coloured hairs on the underside. But, you know, th- this is one that will grow in very dry shade. And I, I think anything that grows in dry shade is okay by me. Oh, yes. <laughs> so that that's kind of the natives I've got. And I've still got about a million other thing, exotic plants. So I don't know if you want me to cover them now or talk about them later. <laughs> are they all ones that grow under ukes? Yes. Yeah, they, these are all from my garden growing under the gum trees. Yeah. Um, what else have I got in here? One plant that um, every, everyone knows is a house plant, but actually is, is really happy outdoors, is Fatsia japonica, the mm. Japanese aurelia, mm-hmm. um, which is also in the ivy family, um, and it has you know really big glossy leaves. Uh, and that, this was the the indoor plant par excellence in the nineteen seventies. You know, you'd see these in sort of orange plastic planter boxes <laughs> right. and yeah, <laughs> next to the macrame wall hanging. Yes, and, yes. <laughs> but um they're actually much happier outside than they are inside. And these are native to um uh sort of dry coastal forests in, in southern Japan and they're amazingly tough. They will grow in dry shade but again they've got this this very uh glossy dark green. They look very generous and lush. Um, and yet another member of, of that ivy family, and this is a plant which is very new in horticulture, is um, this plant from China, which has a very similar look to it, but with smaller, darker coloured leaves. And this is Metapanax delavei. Um, 
it, it's only been in horticulture, I would say, what, 10 or 15 years. Mm. Um, but it is available in the horticultural trade now in Australia. And if people want to see it, they can go to the Botanical Gardens in Melbourne and it's planted in the South Chinese collection. Um, it's also um, uh, around the herbaceous border, uh, th- that sort of area. And um, again, it's a plant that grows in dry shade under gum trees but looks very glossy and generous. Mm. Um, and it hedges very well as well. Okay. Yeah. You're really creating a very lush, almost tropical mm. feel with all yeah. of these. Yeah, that's, yes. that's, that's the feeling I like, yeah, yes. definitely. Fantastic. Yeah. Perfect yeah. on a hot summer's day. Absolutely. And the, the, the gum trees um, are on the northern uh, boundary of my property. Um, so, we, you know, you get these dry, hot winds that blow in in summer from the north. And these, all of these plants that I've planted under the gum trees on the north just slow that wind down and ameliorate the effect mm. of the, the hot, dry wind. So they, they act as a bit of a, an air conditioner for my garden as well, you know. They right. Them, yeah. Fantastic. So, I don't know, do you want me to keep going? I've got... <laughs> <laughs> it does have a whole bucket load there. I certainly do. Um, we've, we've just had, uh, what is it, suggestions for a really good uh, herb nursery, uh, preferably in eastern suburbs uh, now that Lilytail Herb Nursery is closed. Mm, can't think mm. of anything. No. I was going to say Lilydale until I read the end no, of that <laughs> question, actually. Yes, no, I didn't Lilydale's... know it closed down. Oh, yes, yes, a few years ago now. Right. Yeah. I don't know of one, to be quite honest. Neither do I. Mm. Um, I know Bully Nut and Garden do have quite a range of herbs uh, mm. down at, at there, but there's no specialty herb nursery that I can think of out in the eastern suburbs. No. Maybe contact the Herb Society. They would, they would be able to put you in <coughs> Well, our direction. good friend Jill is probably listening, yes. and if she knows of one, I'm sure she uh, can ring up and give us, a, give us a bell as to if there is one that she knows of that's... Uh, Yes, out out in the eastern suburbs. Mm. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, that number again while uh, while I'm just uh, talking, 9419-0155. Uh, we have Simon Rickard and James Beatty and AB in the studio this morning. So if you'd like to, uh, to join in the conversation or ask a gardening question, the number is 9419 or this morning we have Anne on the outside line. If you'd like a chat to Anne, 94198377. Continue. Oh, really? <laughs> I feel like I'm hogging the airways. No, you're not. I can see AB hovering with her plants as well. <laughs> we've all come in, uh, listeners, we've come in armed with uh, plants of plenty this Which morning. Which is wonderful. <laughs> um, look, a, a, a fragrant plant for growing under gum trees in dry shade are the, are the winter boxes, the sarcococcus. Oh, yeah. yes. And um, this um, sarcococca confuser is the most um, uh, widely available one. The one I've got here is called sarcococca chinensis, and you can it, it's it's got flowers, uh, sorry, leaves that are about um, oh, three or four centimeters long, very glossy again. Um, the, the flowers aren't much to look at; they're they're like little white rice grains or something with a with red bracts but the perfume is very strong and if you get a warm day you can smell the perfume right throughout the garden mm. um and again they'll grow right up to the to the bases of gum trees um i've got helleborus uh, this is also a smelly plant <laughs> this is the stinking hellebore helleborus fetidus great which sounds dreadful but it doesn't smell that bad i mean if you crush the foliage it smells like it smells like a vitamin b tablet actually okay <laughs> you know it's not really offensive it's such a terrible common name to give a plant 
Um, but these, uh, most hellebores need lo- uh, light in winter. You know, the, the hellebores with the big colourful flowers that are in flower at this time of the year. Yes. Um, they, they need sunshine in winter because mm. they're native to deciduous forest and, and grassland. Mm. Um, but, but this one here um, will grow in quite uh, dry, dark shade under gum trees. Um, it, it's got little bell-shaped flowers, a pale green. And this variety, which is called Wester Flisk, has got red tips on the petals. But um, I think it's really the foliage that you grow it for, which is this um, hand-shaped sort of palmate foliage. Though I must say, because of the light, almost limey green colour of the flowers, that's really going to show up mm. under darker Darker yes, shade. Yes, true. Yep. Yes, it's really going to light up an area if, yep. if you're wanting that, that sort of extra effect. Yeah, true. That's very true. Yep. Well, look, I, I think the best you can hope for under gum trees is, is foliage textures and think of gar- uh, flowers as a garnish and these certainly do make a beautiful garnish. Yes. For- for this, for this foliage. You do certainly have a particular um, look to the plants that you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just, they're, they're all relatively similar, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I do like interesting foliage. Yeah, mm. definitely. Oh, we've got a couple more callers, do we? Yes. How exciting. Yes, we're going to go to Michael and Hampton. Good morning, Michael. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How can we help? Uh, I've got potato vines in my front garden and back garden, and the ones in the full sun um, are very prolific and bloom well and everything like that. But in the half sun in the back garden, I get uh, a lot of branches thrown out, but very little foliage uh, um, um, uh, comes through. Mm. Fewer flowers, do you mean, when, yes. when it's not in full sun? Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, no, no, the leaves and all. The leaves and all. It, oh, it okay. throws out the branches, but they're sort of bereft of leaves and... Uh, oh. And flowers, Michael. Um, what what creepers uh, vines are um, uh, adapted to do is to straggle their way up through a tree canopy, and then when they get to the top, they go they go three dimensional. They go out in every direction uh, to to catch the light. So probably your potato vine is sending out these these uh, shoots that don't have any leaves because it's just trying to make its way to the highest point where it can catch the sun. I suspect. Is, does that sound right? Does that it ring true? Yeah, yeah. So I, probably that plant doesn't want to grow in the shade. It, it wants to be in the sun. Um, so I don't think you can expect to see any leaves in the shade. Right, right. Uh, but I, the, 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 I'm thinking it's um, some are like it and some are not. Oh, right. Mm. I don't all know. On, all on this, uh, the brickwork wall facing, uh, facing due north. Oh, I see. So they get all they get all the morning sun, but it's sandy soil. Uh, I've dug a lot of compost in. Uh, I'm very careful about over putting, um, mm. um, you know, manure and all this sort of mm. thing in, in case it burns them. Yeah. Um, but um, that's how it is. Mm. Maybe um, try uh, pruning off those long. Um, creepers that don't have any foliage, try cutting them back by half. Yes. Maybe that will encourage them to branch out at the sides and, and put some foliage out down Very. at a level where you can see it. Good, good, good. Uh, and I've got jasmine uh, on a fence that faces west mm-hmm. and would get, um, well, a lot of sun in mi- midday and afternoon. Mm-hmm. And uh, that uh, it gets yellowing of the centre of the leaves. Ah, 
the center of the leaves. That, that sounds more like a nutritional issue than mm. anything to do with the sunshine. Um, it might be worth testing the pH of the soil and seeing what it is. Right. Um, chances are it's either very low, you know, our native soils can have quite yeah. low pH, or if there's uh, been some masonry work put in and, and there are concrete footings, then perhaps it's gone really high. Yeah. Um, so you might need to just correct a nutritional um, uh, problem there, or the plant might need some nitrogen, something like that. But jasmine is very tough. Very, very tough plant. It's in the same family as olives, actually. Right, right. Yeah. Nitrogen, just right in Perhaps, here. perhaps, uh, yeah. And, and and I've got a rose, yes. um, a yellow rose, a David, David Austin. Yep. Uh, and uh, I've pruned it, how they say in the book, mm-hmm. uh, and it had about three years of good growth and uh, uh, prolific flowers, mm-hmm. and done it the same, and the new... Growth coming through grows all like um, like a clenched fist. Ah, fasciation mm. by the sound of it. Mm. Uh, yeah, that, that that could be a like a clenched fist. So you mean the new things that are coming out are all sort of lumpy and bulbous? Yeah, and... exactly, and all tight, and they don't just shoot out and. Yeah, right. Sort of thing. It could be something called fasciation, which yes. is a um, it can be caused uh, when there's damage to the growing tip, the meristem tissue, uh, and that can be caused by a virus, or it can be caused by a mechanical. Um, you know, it's been injured in some way. Um, prune that growth out, uh, right. Michael. Just prune that growth out, and you might get rid of the problem. But if the whole plant starts doing it, then uh, you might need to throw the plant out and start again. Mm. Right. It right. could be a, a sort of um, systemic viral problem then. Right. 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 Poor plant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your advice. I'll follow it up. Good luck, Michael. Right. We are. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Great, and also on the line is uh, Jill from the Herb Society. Good morning, Jill. Jill, are you there? No, we might put Jill back on hold and see if we can get her. Okay, um, now, Wendy of Red Hill has rung in, Simon, um, wondering if you can please go back to mm-hmm. some of your plants and um, give them out slowly, the names, and sure. maybe even spell the names for people who are trying to Write it down so sure. they can look it up later. <laughs> Good. That should take up the rest of the show. <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> okay, Wendy, have you got a paper and pen uh, ready? Hopefully all our listeners <laughs> do have. <laughs> so the, the native plants that I began with, um, there was one called, uh, I'll give you the common name, is elderberry panax. So elderberry and then panax is P-A-N-A-X, elderberry panax. And its scientific name is Polycius Sambucifolius. But look, if you if you just look up elderberry panax online, you'll get it. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one was uh, Coria, so C O R R E A, Coria, and it's Lorenziana, like the name Lawrence with a W, Lorenziana. So if you look at that one up again online, you'll you'll get the spelling for that. If you look up Coria and Lawrence, um, the the fern that I had was. Uh, Polysticum proliferum, which is P-O-L-Y-S-T-I-C-H-U-M, polysticum, and it was proliferum, like the word proliferate, but with an um on the end. 
Um, and the reason it's called proliferum is because at the end of the fronds, it produces these little nodules and they turn into tiny little baby ferns. And then the, the frond will be weighted. The end of the tip will go down under the weight of these little nodules and the baby ferns will, uh, will root and become new plants. So it's very easy to propagate this plant. Fantastic. Um, what else did I have? Acrodenia franklinii. That was the plant from Tasmania that smelt like grapefruit. And the Acrodenia is A-C-R-E-D-I. Sorry. A-C-R-A-D-E-N-I-A. Acrodenia. Uh, and franklinia, like the name Franklin, like Franklin Gorge and Franklin Dam and all the Franklin thing, Mount Franklin. Um, which is not in Tasmania, but anyway. Um, what else did I have? I had a winter box sarcococca confuser, which is S-A-R-C-O-C-O-C-C-A, sarcococca, and confuser, like confused. Um, uh, Metapanax delavay. Oh, this really will take the whole show. <laughs> Dear, oh, dearie me. Um, Metapanax delavay, which is meta, M-E-T-A, and Panax again, P-A-N-A-X. A lot of plants in that in that family, the Aureliaceae family, have Panax in the name. Um, like ginseng is another one, ginseng Panax. Anyway, um, I think that's all I've done for now. <coughs> Wonderful. I'm sure that's, that's given uh, Wendy plenty to go on with anyway. <laughs> and we should um, try Jill again from the Herb Society. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. I want to tell what's happening on Thursday, 6th of uh, August. Right. 7.30 p.m. Okay. Um, Jude Myall is going to talk about um, native plants, indigenous plants, and using them for catering and cooking. Great. And so that's marrying two of the favourite occupations of Melburnians at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) And the address is uh, Room 10 at the um, main building... And that's at Burnley Horticultural College. And that's uh, 500, the Boulevard Burnley. Actually, it's Burnley if you look on the web, but Richmond if you look in the Melway. How Mm. confusing. And it's Melway 45A12. Great. And uh, we have um, a library for those who are members, a free library. Uh, we have a herbal supper with herbal teas and people bring various plants, that herbal um, creations, you know, scones with chives, etc., etc. And we have a jolly time with about 35, 40 people. Excellent. Now, Jill, did you hear our earlier call? We had a listener wanting to know if there was any um, really good herb nursery that you can think of out in the eastern suburbs. Well, um, I think the very um, best in the eastern suburbs has to be Pinewood, which is Blackburn Road. Um, it's uh, between Waverley Road and Ferntree Gully Road. And they have a huge number of, of um, small plants. They also have the curry plant. Um, later on, when the stevia is above ground, they'll have that. And then they had toothache plants this year for the first time. I've mm. never seen it before. Okay. And uh, then they have, you know, the usual things, chives and um, ruby chard and, oh, you go on with comfrey and 
all about three different types of thyme and so on. Right. Sage, two types of sage. And yes, they have dill, they have, yeah, they have heaps of plants. Excellent. And then in the western area, it has to be series in Brunswick. Yes. And their, their plants are so glossy and so, um, oh, just bursting with energy. And they propagate most of them themselves, and they have a great little section on indigenous plants. I bought um, Running Postman, you know, that little uh, red flowering one mm-hmm. there, in a tiny tube, you know, a very, very modest price. And right. It, it's, um, its old address is 8 Lee Street, but if you go to the next street, that's the main part of the nursery right. along um, Rathdown yep. Street. yep. Excellent. Thank no, you no, for no. that. Along Nicholson, Nicholson, Nicholson Street. That's right, yes. Across Nicholson Street. Yes. So I think they're the very best. Um, as a modest number of uh, herbs is at um, the bio nursery on the corner of Grange and Glen Huntley Road. They have some nice herbs. And the other place um, to get fantastic plants is Mornington Market in the street every Wednesday morning from 8 o'clock till, well, I'll say midday because they're packing up after that, okay? Okay. And they have opal, well, they had opal basil this year. Um, Very modest prices because they're the growers. They're not, um, it's not taking shop rents and chop fees out of them. Yes, right. Excellent. So uh, if any others can ring in and tell me, I'd be thrilled to know. <laughs> okay. Look, that's, that's been a great help, Jill. Thanks very much for all of that information. And can I just share one joy I've had this year? Certainly. Um, a, a friend gave me Queen of the Night, which is a lovely um, flower, uh, perfume plant in the evening, you know, with creamish flowers, waxy flowers. And I pruned it down. It flowered this year, a couple of, you know, boughs, small branches, and I cut it back, and one of the prunings has grown as well. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) And that's um, on the north side of the, you know, on the west side of the brick wall, the house, and so it's fairly near the tap because it does need a bit of water. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, there you go. There's the growing conditions for it. Brilliant. <laughs> well done. In full leaf now. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so, so much, can Jill. Can I just ask one question? Sure. Why is it that my sweet peas, even though I put them in on March the uh, 17th... And, <laughs> I didn't uh, listen to you. so small. Is it because it's so cold this year? Because they're so small, did you say, Jill? Yeah, the plants yep. are only... No, that's... Um, well, two inches tall? Half of... Oh, a sixth of a metre high. Normally, they'd be much. Oh, taller. that's huge! That's huge for this time of year. No, they what they do is they germinate in autumn, and then in winter, the top of the plant will sit pretty still, but under the ground, they're putting down a big root system, so that when the days get long enough and the wet and the temperatures are high enough, the top part of the plant will shoot away. So I would say, don't worry. I think it's all normal. No, I did actually take some tip prunings off the top of them, which was something I read in an English book. And I've planted those nearby, and two or three of those have actually um, have grown as well. So I'm, I've developed a green thumb for a change. You're doing well. well. Black thumb. <laughs> That's great. Anyway, thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Jill.
Bye. Bye. And it just shows the value of having a go. Yeah, if you've got, absolutely. If you've been out there pruning, and mm. some people are pruning certain bits and pieces at the moment, mm. you know, why not have a go at propagating some of it? Absolutely. What have you got to lose? <laughs> but Pam, I want to know what AB's got there. I'm sick of talking about my bucket of plants. <laughs> well, I've actually brought in three plants indigenous to my area. Um, I did go a bit herbal last time I came in, but I thought I'd, I'd, I'd <laughs> get back to my roots, get back to the natives. Um, one plant which um, is just starting to come into flower in our area, and James, you would know it because mm. you've worked in our area, is yep. the Acacia verticillata or prickly moses. And um, I brought, just brought in tube stock because I was recently down at um, Edendale Farm, which is our um, community nursery down there, community indigenous nursery. And um, they've got a huge range of um, indigenous plants and um, very healthy stock. And, um, yes, yeah, so I just brought, bought a number of tubes. Um, and this um, acacia, I'm going to create like a small hedge with it, um, just um, sort of breaking up the vegetable garden area, just, you know, just to create a bit of greenery. Mm-hmm. But nothing that grows too high because it's quite close to the house. I don't want to create a fire hazard or anything. Um, it can grow, apparently, it can grow up to five metres and become quite tree-like. I've never seen it at five metres. I've usually seen it, you know, maybe two, three metres and, um, you know, multi-stemmed um, sort of small tree shrub kind of thing. Um, very prickly leaves, but um, sort of softly prickly, if you know what I mean. So, mm. you know, they look prickly and they, they've got a little bit of prick to them, but you can still stroke the plant. Mm. Um, and they've got, um, instead of the sort of fairly typical, I suppose, acacia, you know, bright yellow balls, they've got more sort of um, maybe half a centimetre to a centimetre um, lighter yellow rods mm. um, of flowers in um, in it's well late winter to spring mm-hmm. um yeah so they're just starting to um color up in our area now and um th- it's a very hardy plant um very frost hardy drought drought hardy when it, when it becomes established um prefers a well-drained soil but i mean in our area you know it's extremely heavy clay and mm-hmm. rocky um although I recently discovered it is pretty well drained mm-hmm. um after doing a few tests so um I'm not sure how it would go in boggy conditions, um, but it, I have seen it growing in a couple of the gullies, and it's it's much wetter, obviously, in there, and um, it, it's, it grows very well. So, um, yeah, I'm going to try it as a screen, um, and, yeah, I'll probably just keep it quite low, just encourage slightly more compact growth, mm. and, uh, yeah, see. Is it one of the more long-lived wattles? Or? I, I think it is, yeah. Okay, I yeah. mean, well, it, it's really hard to tell, I mean, because I, I haven't grown it, yeah. but... Um, the plants that I see in our local area, you know, they they do look like they've been there for a while. And, okay. Yeah. 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 So, what, what's your experience with it, James? Um, it's very tough. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and some of the specimens around the bend as well, uh, uh, they look quite old. You're right. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's quite long lived. Um, but a bloke up the road who has his nature strip planted out, he's got one. Oh, on, okay. on, on his and he's had it for a few years and it's flowering and looking beautiful at the moment. Oh, now it? he must have um, got a permit for that, did he? Because that would be well over the <laughs> Well, I think he's going to clip it. I'm not sure. Okay, yeah. But he's also, he's also got a couple of Eremophilas in there which are well over a metre already. So, um, but, uh, yeah. you know, 
what do you do? Yeah. Um, but I really like it. It's good for little birds as well. Little well, birds and that's, like to use it yeah, as shelter. Yeah, that is actually one of the main reasons that I'm, I'm putting it in because it's such good habitat mm. plant for the um, for the smaller birds, for the you know the wrens and mm-hmm. the wagtail, woolly wagtails and all of those. Um, because being near the vegetable garden, they are so good for mm. you know getting rid of the pests and mm. whatnot that um, come through there, along along with the hens. Um, yeah, so it's all about just creating that sort of habitat around the vegetable garden. I've got a few native grasses in the vegetable garden area as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, so just create – I don't want to create sort of like a vegetable monoculture kind of thing. I want to bring the birds in as much as possible um, without impacting on the vegetable garden itself. And and also I'm putting on the north side of the vegetable garden, I'm putting in a, um, a row of Indigophora australis, which is the Aus- Austral indigo. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, that, that again can grow into a small tree, um, very open habit, you know, lovely um, – bright green pinnate leaves so it has a really sort of ferny mm. foliage and the branches hang down mm. and then um, in, in spring and summer it has those sprays of um, um, either light purple or even darker purple and pink flowers depending on where you live. It's it's a plant that's, you know, pretty much in every state I think yeah. of Australia and so because of that wide distribution um, does have that variation in form and habit and, <laughs> and whatnot. So um, um, I'm, I'm actually putting it in because I saw um, a documentary on a, a man in New South Wales who was using the flowers for um, – for dyeing, yep. for dyeing oh, yeah. um, fabric, and he has these enormous vats. And he, it, it, it's not the Indigofera australis he uses, but I know that you can use this this species. So I'm sort of hoping down the track I'll have enough flowers to, um, you to know, have a crack. Have yeah. A crack. Yeah, 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 yeah. Brilliant. I, I think that's um, yeah. I love the idea of of making your own, you know, dyes and fabrics mm. and whatnot. Yeah, so... Um, the seeds of the indigophora were traditionally used for a source of poison when catching fish. Um, oh, is that so? Yeah. Yep. Right, okay, to, yep. to stun them or something. Yeah. Then. Yeah, yep. very interesting. Mm. Yeah, so so not- when your two projects get going, James, you can weave a pair of jeans out of your out of your flax. <laughs> That's right. And AB can die the poison. And AB can die right. with her yes. indigophora. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and bring a fish dinner. Good <laughs> <laughs> from the northern suburbs. <laughs> AB, I might get you to repeat the, the names of those two plants and perhaps spell them for yeah, our listeners. Yeah, sure. So the first one I was talking about was Acacia verticillata, so that's acacia, and then V-E-R-T-I-C-I-L-L-A-T-A, or prickly moses, much easier to remember. I don't think there's any other plants called prickly moses, so um, you'd be right there with the common name. And Indigophora australis, so I-N-D-I-G-O-P-H-E-R-A and australis rather than Australia, and that's um, austral indigo. Um, so, yeah, that's two that are indigenous to, to my area, but also fairly widespread in, in other states as well. So, yeah. Good plants to have a go with. Yep. Now, you live up um, in an area that has very set um, environmental rules. That's right, yeah. We, we, I live in um, an area called the Bend of Islands, which is a, a 600-hectare pocket of land, I suppose you could call it, within kangaroo ground. And it's an environmental living zone, and what that means is that the um, the people living there, me and other residents living there, actively conserve the local flora and fauna and um, there's no dogs or cats allowed. Uh, we don't have fences, um, so basically the fauna has right of way. 
um, which is kind of, you know, a bit to our detriment sometimes <laughs> or to the plant's detriment or if you're trying to create a garden. Mm. But, I mean, really, that that's what you live there for, mm. you know, just to encourage that, <clears throat> excuse me, that biodiversity. But, um, yeah, so it, it is an environmental living zone and, you know, most residents are actively, you know, they're out there every weekend weeding or um, this morning there's a... Um, there's a uh, sort of educational talk on um, how to control um, Kunzia um, or Bergen, which, you know, it's both a fantastic plant and a, and a problem plant in our area because it is so highly flammable. Mm. You know, I use the green, the green um, stems as kindling in, mm. you know, when I want to get my fire going, mm. you know, and these are green and half the time they're wet from the rain mm. and I, they just go up so quickly, mm. you know, so... Um, if you live in an, in a um, bushfire prone area, it's not a plant that you want close to the house. Mm. Um, but I mean, it, it's a gorgeous plant. It's fantastic for hedging and extremely hardy. Um, but yeah, so it's it, it, that that's the kind of thing. Like this morning, there's a there's a management Kunzia management um, talk on. Um, so there's there's those kind of things happening all the time in the community, mm. and and what's fantastic is that it, it really is a fantastic community for that people are. You know, they're always getting involved. Mm. And um, I have to say, a lot of the time when there's um, these talks on, I'm in here. So I actually miss out. It, it seems to have that real thing, especially when they're doing the um, the weeding. Unfortunately, I'm in here, so I can't attend. But, uh, yeah, no, it, it's, it's a very good community for, um, yeah, for encouraging people to get out into, into the environment and, you know, just seeing – um, you know, people have kids and, you know, they're babies and then they slowly get into um, into nature and mm. then, you know, we've got a, a local newsletter that goes out once a month and the kids, are, you know, they put either their drawings or poems or stories about, you know, their discoveries and everything. And it's so lovely to see um, those next generations coming through mm. and really being into nature. Mm. It's, yeah, it's quite enlightening. Mm. I like that you manage the landscape on a community scale yeah. as well. I really like that. Because um, a lot of us forget sometimes that Australian ecosystems and landscapes were always managed, managed. you know, and then when white settlement happened, the management pretty much just stopped and we started getting these terrible bushfires and things. So it's good that you guys are kind of, you know, getting getting back into it and managing it. Yeah, and one of the things that we are doing in our area and, and, you know, surrounding areas is, um, as you're saying, bushfire management and, um, you know, getting the local CFA involved and they will come out to a particular area and have a small burn off and it's fascinating to go along and watch you know they'll have cordoned off an area they'll create a safe area where they you know um, dig the dig the vegetation away so that it can't creep into the bush mm-hmm. and just watching what it does you know and they they highlight what the wind's doing so mm-hmm. that you become aware of all the environmental factors and you know you're all standing behind a safety line watching what the fire is doing and Half the time it doesn't actually really do very much. But, um, you know, it's just very interesting to see what it does mm. in particular winds. And, mm. you know, and I'm actually desperate to get the CFA out to do a burn on our place because that is when you start really uh, managing you know, your native flora and flora yeah. and everything. Yep. And, and with, as I was saying, you know, with the Bergen or the Kunzia, Kunzia ericoides it is, um, it can really take over mm. and it creates an extremely shady environment. Um, so the the understory, you know, the, the orchids and daisies and other things, they don't have as much chance 
to thrive. Mm. Um, so managing that kanzia is very important. So, yeah, I'm hoping actually um, in the next year or so to, to have a managed burn on our property. And, you know, I, when I just recently finished writing a, a book with Angus Stewart on uh, Australian gardens and we've included a small section in there on designing for bushfire areas and um, so I was able to talk to quite a few um, experts you know on bushfires and one of the things that one of the guys was saying from our local area actually um, is not really to be afraid of having a managed burn because we're all you know Mm. we just see these stories on television and everything and we're absolutely paranoid about Mm. you know starting a fire and and rightly so you know because you don't want it to get out of control Mm. Um, but at the same time if you know what you're doing Mm. um, it can be a really handy tool yeah incredibly useful yeah absolutely so that's that's something that I'm looking forward to doing hopefully Mm. and of course we forget that a lot of um Australian natives regenerate uh, due to fire. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it is a, a way of, of bush renewal in mm. many ways. Absolutely. And, I mean, anyone who went up to, you know, King Lake area after the after um, the Black Saturday fires, you know, straight away you could see, I mean, the, the, the ferns and everything were probably the first to regenerate. But it was very interesting to see um, what was actually starting to germinate from mm. <clears throat> from that seed bank that's, mm. that's in the soil, yeah, you know, absolutely. and with that high potassium, um, <laughs> oh, sorry, high phosphorus, um, content because of the fires, mm-hmm. um, it, it gives these yeah mm-hmm. it gives these plants a, a chance to, to germinate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the areas we used to work in in Steels Creek had before the fires it was it was basically a monoculture of kunzia, mm-hmm. um, and then after the fires, um, probably about a year and a half after the fires, um, it was just a carpet of chocolate lilies. I've never seen wow, anything that like have been it. Spectacular. Yeah, it was yeah. amazing. There mm. were thousands, hundreds of thousands of them. Mm. Yeah, so they just must have been sitting advantage. there all that time yeah. you know, yes, while the yeah. kanzi was growing over the top and, yep. and it took them a year and a half to, to get there after the fires. But, geez, they looked spectacular. I yeah. bet. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, Fantastic. Beautiful. What about in your area, Simon? Is there any sort of um, planned burns that they have? Yeah, that yeah, way? yeah. I'm on the edge of the Wombat State Forest. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, between the DSC and the CFA, you know, all of our areas are in our uh, – Lots of managed burning going on. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And what about in a garden setting? Uh, well, people, you know, do burn off on their own blocks mm. if it's big enough. Um, I'm in town, so some people don't have big enough. What we have at our local tip is they will take green waste um, prior to fire season. They'll take green waste without any charge. So in October and November, people just take enormous amounts of mm. um, flammable material to the to the to the tip where yeah. it's mulched up yep. um, and dealt with there. Um, yeah, and then the the managed burns in the forest. I mean, I think it's been really interesting. We've learnt so much from events like King Lake and and the Canberra bushfires a few years back about, um, you know, lots of small fires will present prevent large fires from happening. Because mm-hmm. I think there was a misconception for a long time that, you know, you just had to prevent fires at all costs, and con- you know, conservation basically meant stopping <laughs> fires because we perceived them to be some dreadful accident that that happened. Whereas in in fact, they're a normal feature of our of our climate and landscape. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's the tool that was used to basically sculpt the landscape of mm. Australia as well. So to think that you know you just can't you remove it from a management system, no. um, it's 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 a it's a crazy thing to do. Really, I think we need to be doing it more, bringing mm. it back, and you know experimenting with it. And we don't have a lot of knowledge about fire response in vegetation communities. You know, a lot of that knowledge has been lost mm. because because you know. Um, 
Aboriginal people who had that knowledge, you know, haven't passed it on and, and no one asked them as well. So, you know, in a sense, we're learning from scratch. And so. if listeners want to read an interesting book on this, James, you mentioned Bill Gamage's mm. um, The Greatest Estate, yeah. which is probably... Great I mean, book. It'll, it'll just change the way you think about the Australian landscape. Yeah. It mm. should yep. be required reading, really. Yeah, I agree. should be on the syllabus. And Bruce Pascoe's book, Dark Emu, Black Seeds, um, I think it was published last year or the year before. It's kind of kind of builds on Bill Gamage's book um, as well, but he he looks more at um, Bruce Pascoe looks more at um, approaching approaching primary sources and evidence to say, look, look, Aboriginal people weren't hunter gatherers and nomads. You know, they actually built communities, and you know, there were there were accounts of um, uh, Sturt when he was exploring the interior of Australia. Um, finding people harvesting the seed heads of kangaroo grass and 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 stacking them up like haystacks and and thatching them and harvesting the seed and making flour and storing it and and you know that's yeah that's agriculture mm. it is so it's yeah both of those books are fascinating if people are interested yeah mm. i'd highly recommend either of them they're great fantastic mm. Uh, we are, as I mentioned, running through until our normal time slot of 9.15. So if you do want to jump on the phones and ask a question while we're still here, uh, feel free. The number to speak to the team is 94190155 or to speak to Anne on the outside line, 94198377. AB, you've got one more plant there that you haven't mentioned. I do, and I'm very, very excited about this plant. It's um, it's a carpobrote. It's called Carpobrotus modestus and um, most commonly known as pig face. This particular one is inland pig face. And the reason I'm excited about it is it is indigenous to my area. And um, I like pig faces. They can really add a splash of colour into a dull garden. I have tried tried it in the past and uh, the rabbits got into it, even though somebody told me the rabbits definitely will not eat this plant. <laughs> of course they did. Um, but um, Edendale Farm has has um, created another crop and so I've um, recently got my hands on some. I'm going to grow this on this time. I'm going to try and create quite a large plant before I put it in and really harden it off well um, just so that, uh, yeah, perhaps the rabbits won't be inclined Mm. um, because it is a hard one. Um, Most plants that I put in the garden, I put bird cages on top Mm. of just to give them that really good start so nothing touches them. Mm. But this one, of course, being a spreading ground cover is um, far too difficult for that. But um, Carpobrotus, it's, um, I think there's a, um, how many species? There's um, between 12 and 20 species and most of them are um, indigenous to South Africa. There's a, a few to South America, um, and there's only four in Australia. Um, so I, I was very excited a few years ago to find that um, um, this was native to. What our colours area. the flower on that one, Ab? It's it's a pink. Yeah, quite quite a, a pink one. Yeah, not not that really iridescent mm-hmm. sort of fluoro pink. Yeah. <laughs> um, just a, you know a few tones underneath that, yep. which, which is fine by me. But uh, still lovely to have in the garden. That, that's going to go in, in our sort of north facing rockery garden area. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so looking forward to seeing what I can do with that one. But um, yeah, as I said, I'll harden it off really well first mm-hmm. and um, create a, a, a really good plant. Um, all right, well, we should probably go to another caller. So we've got Lee from Merricks. Good morning, Lee. Good morning, panel. I'm ringing this morning because I need a bit of moral support. <laughs> I bought a uh, Canadian Acer because I was deeply envious of the bright blaze of colour my neighbours had over the valley last autumn. <laughs> and uh, so I've got this Canadian Acer. They tell me it's going to go to eight metres or beyond. And it suggests that I should prune it. Now, 
it's brand new, and I'm very proud of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're, we we're all sitting here with puzzled looks on our faces. <laughs> I, I'm I'm really puzzled. For a start, um, maples colouring down on down on the peninsula. So your neighbours have got maples that coloured last autumn, did they? This is bright, bright red. It's Fantastic! Amazing. Wow! It's, it's, it's and a big can... tree. It's been there for about twelve or. 14 years thereabouts, mm-hmm. so it's, it's pretty well fully grown, I imagine. And this Canadian maple you're talking about, is it... Canadian Acer, what did I say? Maple? Acer Saccharum, is it? Oh, it's Acer, is I, oh, I, oh, I have to run down and have a look at the ticket. <laughs> 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 well, I'm guessing if it's the one on the Canadian flag, flag it'll be Acer Saccharum, and that'll grow to much bigger than eight metres. Um, but then again, they also like colder winters than what you've got there. So it, it might grow quite fast and quite rank um, and and be prone to uh, splitting and branches falling off and stuff. So you really want to try to train it um, to a, a very sturdy kind of uh, framework of branches. Um, make sure that the, the, the crotch angles of the branches are nice and wide so that the, the plant's nice and sturdy and doesn't fall apart as it grows. Um, At the moment, it's fairly narrow and upright. Great. So is it what we'd call a single leader tree? Does it have a trunk going right up the middle to the top of the tree? Well, I think it does. I think that would be suggesting I prune off. Mm. Uh, Well, why would you want to do that? Because it says so on the ticket. They've got a drawing of and they've got these cut marks saying prune. Oh, okay. I'm getting close to the tree. I'm just worried I'm going to lose the phone. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Look, it depends on you, you can grow maples, aces as central leader trees or um, branch head standards. So, if you pruned the that central shoot out now, you'd you'd get a, a kind of ball on a stick, which is what we call a branch head standard. Yeah. Um, I would be. It depends on how tall you want the tree to grow. Well, I'm on acreage, so it can go as high as it likes. Well, in that case, I would leave it to its own devices. Aces are better unpruned if possible. They don't respond well to big pruning cuts, and uh, they always look better in their natural form. So my advice to you is don't touch it. Oh, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I'd do if it was my tree, but it's kind of up to you. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. (laughs) I I I was looked at it yesterday with a secretary in my hand and then thought... Oh, I think I might read the garden show enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you did, Lee. Don't touch it. Leave it alone. If it's got a nice central leader up the middle, um, you'll, you'll have a, a very handsome tree. Yes, it's quite a nice shape as it is right now. And I suppose if it isn't by next year, I can then prune off anything that's errant, can't I? You can. Yeah, okay. Thank you for that. No worries. Good Bye. on you, Lee. Oh dear. As I mentioned, we are running through until 9.15, so uh, if you'd like to jump on the line quickly and give us a call, 94190155. Now, Simon, um, uh, you've already written a book on heirloom vegetables. I have. Which uh, is just a fantastic resource book <laughs> and, and beautiful stories. I mean, and if anybody ever wanted to know anything about vegetables and particularly heirloom vegetables and the stories behind them, the interaction of people and vegetables, it's just fantastic. Thanks, Pam. But I've been told you're going to have you started? Do one about heirloom fruit? Heritage fruit? Yes. Ah, well, that's very topical. (laughs) Uh, Very topical because, uh, yes, I have written a book on heritage fruit and it was due to go to hit the shelves in February next year. But unfortunately, my publisher uh, last week was, um, unfortunately, their parent company, Penguin Random House, dumped my publisher, Mm. Lantern, um, who also published books by Stephanie Alexander, Maggie Beer, Kylie Kwong, Paul Bangay, uh, quite a stable of 
interesting authors. Um, so unfortunately, uh, my book, which was due to grow, go to um, uh, typesetting in two weeks, is now looking for a new home. Mm. Right. So, <laughs> so the answer to your question is yes, I have written a book on heritage fruit. But so this yeah. is a call out to all those publishers listening. All, all those publishers listening, yeah. <laughs> That's right. We need Simon's book to hit the shelves. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah, it's um, all ready to go. And it was, it, my heritage fruit book is a sister volume to the uh, heirloom vegetable To the book. vegetables, So yes. again, it's a social history of heritage fruit telling the stories of where humans and fruit have been together. Right. Um, the, the story of the domestication process, dissemination around the world, um, and, uh, yeah, just the, the, the stories of where humans and fruit have been together. Mm, that mm. must take a lot of research. It does, yeah. It took a, a lot of research. Really interesting, though. I mean, oh, such an interesting be fascinating. topic. Yeah. And yeah. then taking all the photographs as well Yes, um, has been a very interesting pro- process. Because mm. you do all the photography yourself. Yeah, right? yeah, I do yeah. all the photography, yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, you know, I did uh, photographed a lot of my stone fruit up at Mount Alexander Fruit Gardens up uh, in um, um, Harcourt, uh, that, that sort of area. Um, so, yeah, it's been really interesting. And a lot of the uh, apples and pears I photographed in Tassie at okay. Woodbridge Fruit Trees. Yes. Um, Have you had much connection with Heritage Fruit Societies? No, no, I haven't actually. Okay. The, no, we have got a really good Heritage Fruit Society, but no, I, I haven't uh, had much connection with them. They have a wonderful open day and, and tasting day up at uh, Petty's Orchard in Templestowe. Yes. In, I think it's in March yes. or February, something like that. They've and also just had a, a pruning and grafting day down at um, Werribee Mansion. Of course, down yeah. Down at their orchard down there. That's right. Look, and if people are interested in, in grafting, it's not nearly as difficult as it sounds. So get along to one of the grafting days and give it a go yourself. Well, and of course, they, they provide all the scion you know, for yep. people, so you can you can virtually order what um, what different species of heritage fruit you want, and, right. and they will um, yep. have it there ready for you, which yep. is fantastic. So go to the tasting day in in February or March, whenever it is. Yes. See what varieties you like, and then go and graft them yourself later on in the year. Yes, all good fun, excellent project. Yep, yep, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, we'll cross our fingers, Simon. I can't believe Thanks, that, Pam. Um, yeah, that yeah, Lantern of, have gone. Yeah, no, neither can I. It's, uh, I don't think anyone really saw it coming, but mm. um, unfortunately it's um, business, mm, as yeah. they say. Mm. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been talk for, for quite a few years now that uh, books are on the way out, and mm. I don't at all believe that because... no. Um, there's so many people like myself that really need to hold a book in our hands. Well, I think books work as a technology, you know. Um, you, you think about um, other me- methods of data storage. You know, you can't stick a floppy disk from your computer from 15 years ago. No, if you've got a floppy disk with photographs or or work on it, you can't access that information anymore. That's right. Whereas you can still read a book that came off the Gutenberg Press in 1485 exactly. or whatever. You know, so books work as a technology. Yes. And um, I mean, I, I think, you know, aren't, books that aren't illustrated, uh, that, that that's one thing to read on your e-reader. Mm-hmm. Um, but but illustrated books, are, and they're also nice objects to have and to hold. I mean, like my my vegetable book has got lovely textured cover and, mm. you know, the the, the, the it, it just feels nice in your hands. And it's the right size. You can actually read it in bed. I can, yeah, <laughs> I can yeah, vouch for right. that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So we'll, but, we'll I mean, even happens. you think about all the old, um, all the old printed catalogues, for instance, mm. and they're still fascinating mm. to go yeah. through and read. <laughs> yep. 
you know, and, and some of the varieties that were around back then. Have you been looking through some of those catalogues Abs- in your research? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very, very interesting. And and some interesting books from the 1910s and the 1920s in Australia, that sort of interwar period where we had a thriving fruit-growing industry in uh, up in the Riverina and in Tasmania as well. And some of the books from those times talking about the varieties they grew, talking about the, the techniques that they used to grow them, uh, and then... Uh, exporting to markets as, as far afield as Norway. I mean, I, I wow. had no idea Goodness, we mate. we exported apples to Norway, you know. Wow. Um, so very, very interesting fruit-growing culture um, that we once had in Australia. And unfortunately, it's, you, you know, it's very hard for people in horticulture now, uh, for fruit growers now, because we're so entrenched in a supermarket culture where we expect food to be the cheapest thing that we mm. buy. And mm. so people are outraged at the thought mm. of paying, you know, $4 a, a kilogram for apples or whatever. Mm. Um, and so that's of course, resulted in, you know, if imports are, are cheaper than locally grown fruit, that, that's what people want to buy. And mm. so, unfortunately, it's it's really difficult for fruit growers in Australia. Mm. And everything has to be perfect looking, doesn't it? Yeah, we, we, we throw away, I forget what the percentage is, but it's, you know, it's something ridiculous. like 40%. But it's appalling. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. You know, so, um, there's a thing now in France um, where they have a special section in supermarkets for second quality mm. produce. So, you know. Well, um, I think Woolies is doing that yeah, now. They are. are they? The odd really? yes. oh, yes. Jamie Oliver's pushing it, you know, and, it, and it, as a um, way to, you know, make sure that our fruit's not going to waste. Basically, mm, the farmers great. aren't growing stuff for nothing, mm. you know, Good. and and have a bit of fun with the kids with funny shaped fruit and veggies, mm. yeah, you yeah. know, because who hasn't laughed at a carrot with you know a nose in three years and yeah, everything yeah. else? Exactly, you know? that's right. So yeah, I say bring it, bring on the odd bunch everywhere. Yeah. I agree. Agreed. Here, here, AB. <laughs> You've reminded me too, Simon, that. Um, that it wasn't that long ago that uh, there was a bounty placed on on all the apple orchards in Tasmania. Really? Oh yes, and farmers were paid to rip out their oh, apple really? orchards. Mm. What? Uh, why? What was the motivation behind that? Pam's shrugging for the listeners. No, this was this was back in the seventies. Was there were, was there a glut of them? Or something? Yeah, oh, I think back there was in the seventies. Yes, there was a. I'm, I'm so sure there was a glut, ago. and they weren't. Um, Yes, okay. they weren't. Um, they weren't there wasn't the much. markets on the mainland. You know, there was problems with transportation. I mean, yeah, yeah. Because um, I, I was living down in Tassie, down in the early seventies, mm-hmm. and um, we had a problem even just getting getting freight across from the mainland mm. back into Tasmania. For mm. you know, the the ship would come in once a month, and we'd <laughs> we'd madly race to. I'd, I'd race up to Launceston or Burnie to try and get sort of more exotic produce that wasn't normally available yeah, in right. Tasmania. And, yep. And I think it probably was partly, you know, that that whole um, yes. process of shipping the apples back yep. to the mainland. Their markets were were not. It's interesting, there. isn't it? I mean, I think these are all the issues that tie in with the commodification of food. You know, when 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 food growing food is dictated by. You know the laws of supply and demand, and and how much the the middleman is making on it. You, you get things like that, r- yes. r- ripping out apple trees or or ripping out citrus trees up in the Riverina because mm. you know the supermarket could buy them cheaper from South America. Exactly. Um, very very interesting. I mean, food's for eating people. It's not for buying and selling. It's it's not like flat screen TVs and cars. It's exactly. it's actually for eating and enjoying. And well, it's for keeping. The human race alive. Yeah. For goodness sake. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't get me started, Pam. <laughs> okay. Oh, I wish I'd go to Mary in Clifton Hill. Good morning, Mary. Oh, hello. It's great fun this morning. Oh, 
Terrific show this morning. Um, look, I'm just so pleased to hear Pigface mentioned. So I remember, um, you know, when I was young, all of the railway embankments, it seemed to me, had Pigface yes, running that's down true. them. Yes, And um, also, um, I've tried the coastal the coastal one has a delicious fruit, mm. um, and uh, you know it is bush tucker. And I, the, the inland one has the fruit too, so it's a it's. A, I've been thinking of growing it too because um, it's kind of it's it's not exactly a bland taste. It's not a sharp taste, but it's rather like a, a gooseberry strawberry sort of. Yeah, thing. I reckon it's like salty strawberries. Yeah, and and it's just a lovely thing. Mm. I think it's a, a great idea to get it, and. Um, and perhaps we could introduce it more. And Mary, the have you tried using the leaves themselves in stir fries? No, I haven't. Yeah, actually, we've Angus and I put that in our book. You know, it's what, along with um, a couple of the other pig face varieties that apparently, yeah, you can use them in stir fries. So I'm, I'm looking yeah, forward to giving that a try. Really useful plant. Yeah, you know? and yeah. When I was young, I thought, oh, that's a bit lurid. <laughs> <laughs> and Mary, you mentioned the railway embankments. Of course, they're they're wonderful for stabilising. You know, embankments and sandy soils and so exactly. forth. Exactly. Yes, I mean they're really a they're super useful, duper, very useful plant. And um, thanks for bringing it up. Thanks very much. <laughs> thanks, hey, Mary. Good on you, Mary. Bye bye. Great. And um, we're now going to go to Ken and Sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Look, you, you got me going and got me quiet. <laughs> <laughs> you talking about um, fruit and Australian fruit. Um, all my life, I've been to the big market. And I, I went with my family uh, when I was a kid and they all met there and we went back to my grandmother's place and and um, they shared everything out and we had lunch and then by the time they all yapped and yapped and yapped, <laughs> we'd have tea there and then we'd go home fairly late. And <clears throat> I took my kids to the market too. But when I, and I mean this too, when my wife and I were on our own, if we just started to slip into that thing of going to Safeway. Mm. Now, recently, I said to my wife, the fruit is horrible. And I went back to the market. Now we eat real fruit. Yes. And it is absolutely, they don't freeze it. Mm. They don't put it into cold storage. It just goes straight out and it's sold. And it's the best you can get. So everybody support markets. Yes. Absolutely, and a lot of these growers, I mean, I either buy my fruit and veggies at uh, Healesville Market, Healesville Farmers Market, or um, at uh, St Andrews Market, and, you know, they're local growers, mm. and they pick their fruit and vegetables either the night before or the morning of, you know, That's so right. they are just bursting with freshness, they're mm. crispy as anything, they seem to last longer because, you know, they don't have that those travel miles, so there's definitely a lot to be said for market shopping. And what's the name of that pig face that's Yeah, the one that I've got is the Carpabrotus modestus, which is inland inland pig face. There's, there's about, I think there's four um, Australian ones. I'm, I'm not sure the other species. So. Well, I'll find out what they are because that's the one and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, cause I, I need go. some grand plant. And I, I planted, um, and I wish I hadn't have, and I've just, it's a nightmare. I, um, I had a heart attack. Oh, last year and the year before, and um, I let, was told to let my garden go. And just from what I've been involved in over my life, and just to um, just to let it go for a while, and I did. And I've 
it's gone all right. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting slowly back into it. But there's this um, creeper that I put in and I thought, oh, it'll be all right over the back fence. Well, I've got to get rid of it and it's a nightmare. So mm. anyway, <laughs> that's my problem. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know Get what him. it is, Ken? No. Oh. It's a pest. A pest, yes. <laughs> well, anyway, like... thanks very much and um, I urge everybody to buy fresh fruit and go to farmer's markets and, um, and go to the Vic market or Footscray market, wherever you live, there's a market and just go there. All well, right, thanks, thanks very Ken. much for See you later. Absolutely brilliant. Good Thank on you. you. Thanks, Ken. Bye. It does have to be said, a lot, a lot of fruit does store extremely well without any loss in quality, and things like <coughs> pears don't ripen on the tree. I mean, they will only ripen after a period of cold storage and yes. then you know, putting them out at room temperature for a while. Um, and citrus fruits store very well too. So a lot of fruits do store for, for long periods of time. Um, yeah, whereas things, things like stone fruit, of course, need to go straight to market and be mm. consumed. But but I, I think where the the reason fruit's often better at local farmers' markets is because it can be picked at, at peak ripeness, whereas um, if it's being transported long distances um, for storage at supermarkets, it has to be picked before it's... Um, fully ripe um, because once it begins to ripe, ripen um, the flesh softens um, and it won't store as well but mm. at that time also that the, the flavour is the most intense and the sugars are at their exactly, highest exactly. point so yeah and I think also from you know if you're concerned about climate change mm. from that perspective um, buying locally is fantastic you know <clears throat> last night uh, I made pesto pasta and I was sitting there eating I was like oh my goodness okay so the pesto was made by a woman at the Heelsville Market. The coriander that I sprinkled on top was from the Heelsville Market. Um, the leek I used the same. Broccoli I used the same. Um, I used a Lilydale chicken, so I'm sure that's from Lilydale somewhere. Uh, and um, <laughs> a, um, fresh pasta from Danini's in Malvern. So that, that was a really, you know, mm. local dish mm. and, and lemons from our tree. So, Yum. you know, if, if you are concerned about, you know, climate change, that it can be relatively easy mm. um, if you're shopping at market markets to um, eat local. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Make... You really get a sense of that seasonality of food as well when you shop oh, at totally, markets as well because yeah. the way prices go up and down when things are out of season, it's really mm. stark in a market yes, situation, right. you know. So and if you and that's the same thing if you want to if you want to, you know, be good to the environment then try and eat seasonally. Yeah. Mm. And yes. if you, if you eat seasonally you you really um, you have the joy of it really is strawberry time mm. or it really yes. is raspberry yes, time. Yes. You know, forget about all this that's come from California or yeah. somewhere else and yep. we shouldn't be eating it yeah. now anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, by all yeah, means, go seasonally. Right. Agreed. Absolutely. Yep. We've just got time, James. Um, I know I asked you to check up on any good you stories did, indeed. that might be coming up <laughs> oh. on Gardening Australia. I haven't yes. brought the sheet in this time. Um, we've, got a, we've got a guy coming up on the show, um, not next weekend, but the weekend after. Um, Bill Dewar, he's out in uh, in uh, Western Australia, and he's got a really great collection of um, cycads and aloes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and his property is just, uh, it's, an, it's another world. It's otherworldly for sure. Um, and the story is called Little Africa. Um, so, so watch out for that one. There's quite a few interesting species in that. And he's quite a collector of things like uh, lithops, the little stone plants and things like that. Right. And he's got some large specimens, the biggest that I've ever seen. Um, so that's a really good one. Visually, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, but we just, we just finished up shooting a story with um, Ian Tolley, the famous citrus grower in Renmark. Um, this week, we went up there and spent 
four days up there shooting shooting a couple of stories with mm-hmm. him. Um, and he's he's in his mid to late 80s now and he's spent over 40 years developing citrus in Australia as an industry as well as several other countries around the world and is if there's you know there's no question that he hasn't been asked about mm. citrus mm. and so he's a real pioneer of the citrus mm. industry oh absolutely absolutely wow. um so that's that's one that we've just shot so that's probably going to be going to air probably about 5 or 6 weeks from now okay. um, but that's definitely one to watch out for because some of the some of the cultivation advice that he gives in it is it's it's pretty new um and it'll surprise a lot of people um okay he's he's saying that when you when you're planting um, your tree and and one of his biggest things that he talks about as well and it really goes to show the importance of of information and you know trying to trying to educate yourself and kind of raise the standard of um, gardeners who are who are going and buying their fruit trees from their local nursery he said that if you want to grow good citrus in your yard you've got to get the right rootstock mm. um, mm. and you need to go in you need to go into your nursery and you need to say i want to grow this lemon or this orange or this mandarin and i need it on this rootstock and then and then they can go and source that tree for you and you've got the right tree for your right spot so matching that matching that rootstock and scion is absolutely mm. critical um, and he's provided us with a little table that we're going to put up on the website after the story goes to air so people can have a look and, and try and gauge which rootstock is going to be best for their conditions. Well, that's really interesting because it's very hard to get that sort of information. Yeah, yeah, it's extremely absolutely. difficult. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I'm forever banging on about this too. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's something that's just woefully overlooked in Australia. It um, is. Yeah. You know, you just go into your nursery and buy a lemon tree. Yeah. And, and we, right. we have such variable soil here. You yeah. think, why why haven't we developed this culture of insisting that we, you know, we know a lot about our rootstock and we, we insist that we have a certain one. I think I think we really should start doing it. And he's all about that. He's mm. got a, you know, he's got to be in his bonnet about it and he's not afraid to, he's not afraid to say it. Um, yeah. He's he's good. He's great. He, he'll, he'll be great on telly. Um and his planting information as well. Um, some of it, some of it's not entirely new or radical. Like don't don't plant in winter. Wait until wait until spring when the roots are actively growing on the tree. And um, but he says um, the best way to plant any citrus is to is to take it out of your pot and dunk it in your wheelbarrow full of water, mm-hmm. and leave it for half an hour and wash all the roots off it before you really? put it all in the ground. Roots. All, yep. the soil, all the soil wow. off yep. the roots. Yep. You yep. Mean, yep. Yeah. Okay. yeah, wash wash all the potting mix off the roots. Um, and then you know make a make a cone mound in in your hole in the ground. Um, mm. If if you've got a heavy clay soil, which a lot of Australia does, he recommends not planting it in the ground. You've got to mound up the soil and then plant into the mound because that's that's also good for drainage. But oxygen um, is critical with mm. citrus. Mm. Um, and he, when I was talking to him on the phone when I was researching the story, he said, you know, you think about a. a, a I'm going to say airfield porosity. It's a bit of a it's a bit of an industry term. Um, um, looking at the oxygen content of potting mixes, and it's anywhere you know between thirteen, fifteen, sixteen percent. And you go to a clay soil, mm. and that air fill porosity goes down to two or three percent. Yes, you know, wow. So it's it's critical. And he grows he grows most of his citrus on his property at the moment in big pots. Um, he's got forty year old citrus stuff like canotto in pots and things, mm, and wow. it's just all firing, and it looks magnificent. Mm. Um, but that's definitely one to watch out for. Mm. It's a great story. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time for yet another week. A huge thank you to the team. It's been great to have you back, Simon. Um, I think I'm dragging you back in again another time before Christmas comes around. Uh, Good to see you as always, James. Cheers, Pam. Thank you. Um, And I have to say a big thank you to Vicky and Anne who've been dealing with all the phones this morning. We'll, of course, be back at uh, 7.30 next weekend, so tune in then. But until then, bye for now.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.